Good morning. So good to be with you today. We'll open your Old Testament to the book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles. In a moment, we're going to read several verses you know, from that book. I want to begin this morning with a question, and that is, have you ever been angry? Well, I would guess that most every one of us have. In one way or another, we have been angry. Anger is a natural emotion, and it is an emotion that is actually a God-given reactionary emotion. God manifests anger, and we realize that as the Holy One, the Everlasting One, from His nature, from His viewpoint, it is a good emotion. It is an emotion that grows out of His being, His nature of being the eternal light or the eternal law. Emotions are generally triggered by stimuli, and something will stir us up in one way or another, and we will react to that in some emotional way. And usually that's going to be something that's from outside of us. The stimulus comes from outside of us, and there can be different degrees of intensities of our anger, from something that's very mild to something that could be very severe. But just because anger is a natural emotion, that does not mean that it is always a good anger. It does not mean that it is always a justifiable anger. An angry reaction may be unjustifiable. An angry reaction may be an unreasonable reaction. And thus, it could lead to sin. With that said, I want to ask you a second question, and that is this. Have you ever been angry toward God? Have you ever been angry toward God? Has life not turned out for you in the way you think it ought to have? Have you been repeatedly mistreated, mistreated for doing what is right, for doing what is good? Do you feel overwhelmed by life's unfairness? Because life is unfair a lot of the time. Have you ever doubted God's grace? Have you ever doubted God's justice in your personal life? Because of how events have unfolded? I suggest to you that a believer and a servant of God becoming angry toward God may not be such an uncommon thing. We're going to focus on three main passages today. And for that reason, I am not using a PowerPoint. I want you to look at the text. And I want you to open up your Bibles and follow along as we examine these three references, these three passages. And I'll make mention of some other you know, cross-referencing, but these are the, these will be three main texts. And the first one is 1 Chronicles chapter 13. So we'll turn your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And we're going to read the entire chapter. 
It's not that long, but we're going to take the time to read the entire chapter of 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And it begins by saying, Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all they simply said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together, from the Shihor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating, celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs, with lyres, harps, and tambourines, and cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. So he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died. He died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called that place Perazuzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that they had. David became angry. And he became angry. Why? He became angry because of Jehovah's justice. That's why. And we're pointed out in this chapter that all throughout King Saul's reign, so you think about the entire reign of King Saul previously, through that entire reign, the ark of God was in Abinadab's house in Kirjirim in Judah. That's where it was. The entire time, Saul was king. Now, how did he get there? Well, let's back up very briefly and just give a synopsis of what occurred previously. If you took the time to go back and read, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, where we're told that's where it is, and you go even earlier, you find in chapter 4, in the days of the prophet and the priest and the judge Eli, that his sons, his sons carried the ark into battle. And they carried the ark into battle against the Philistines. But what happened? Israel was defeated. And then the ark was taken. So now the Philistines got the Ark of God. 
cherubim. He says, so they take this ark of the Lord and they place it in front of their idol, Dagon, in the city of Ashdod. Well, what happens then is they walk into their temple you know, afterwards and they find that the idol has fallen over and his head and his hands were broken off. So that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 5. But that's not all that happened. So you've got the, the, the idol Dagon falling over and, and being broken. And then God struck, struck the Ashdodites with these tumors, terrible tumors. To the point that the Philistines said, well, we need to get rid of this ark. We need to, we, we need to return the ark back to the Israelites. And then they do that. Chapter 6 of 1 Samuel. And so it's carried back you know, into the land of Israel by you know, uh, uh, placing it on a cart and, and, and it being you know, led off by two cows. And then those cows just walk on ahead by themselves. And making sure that that, that that cart and those cows go into the land of Israel. And it does. And they get over to the area of Beth Shemesh. And they see it. And so they're all excited about that, that the ark of God has come back to them. But then God strikes down. Several thousand Israelites of Hashemus because they look inside the ark. So that's what has transpired in the early chapters of 1 Samuel before the days of King Saul. And so it is at that point, after this Hashemus incident, that the ark is placed in the house of Benadab in Kirjirim of Judah. So that's the history of the ark up to this point. So now we come back to our text this morning of 1 Chronicles chapter 13, where the bringing of the ark back home, bringing the ark of God where it belonged, was really a call from King David for what was a spiritual restoration. That's a good thing, isn't it? That we need to bring the ark back where it's supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be taken into battle, first of all. And it shouldn't have been taken by the Philistines. And it shouldn't have stayed at the house of Abinadab. Because of what transpired. But that's what had transpired. And so David said, let us bring it back. Let us bring it home. So he calls the assembly together. And they all agree, yes, this is a good idea. It is right in their judgments. And so this becomes a great occasion of celebration. There is joy, there's excitement, but soon all of that joy, all of the rejoicing and celebrating before God is turned to anger and fear because of what transpired. And one of the things we can draw from this passage is that the end did not justify the means. And what do I mean by that? That is, the call for spiritual restoration, the call to turn the ark back to where it should have been in the tabernacle, you know, that call did not give you justification to do so, to bring it back any method of transportation that you wanted to do so. <coughs> Good intentions did not justify touching the ark. And God showed that with divine justice. And it all came down to the fact that failure to abide by God's laws was the root problem. 
That was the root problem. It shouldn't have been taken to battle in the first place. It shouldn't have been left in the house of Benadad. And they shouldn't have put it on the, on the, the cart. It should have been carried by the, the Levites as God directed. And so the root problem was this you know, lack or disrespect of divine authority. And so we get to the verse I want us to very briefly think about, and that is this. Then David became angry. Was David's anger justifiable? Was it reasonable? Well, you can decide that for yourself. But well, let me point out that David became angry with God. David was angry with God for God showing his anger. God got angry with his children because they disobeyed him. And now he executes justice and, it's, and, it, brought, and it was a severe you know, implement of justice. And so now David is angry because God is angry and God is angry because of their irreverence, their disrespect, their disobedience. Everybody knows the consequences of sin or consequences for sin can be severe. We know that. The consequences for sin can be severe. And the severity of divine justice, yes, can be upsetting. But it does not mean that it's not just. And so our perception, our perception of what is just, our perception of what is righteous, though, can become skewed. Can it not? And our discernment, our judgments of how things ought to turn out, the way we think they should turn out, or the way we want them to turn out. You know, our discernment, our judgment in those matters sometimes cause us to react emotionally, emotionally toward our Heavenly Father in an unfavorable manner. David was angry with God because God executed justice. Because God is God. And God is going to uphold his name. He's going to uphold righteousness. And David became angry with that. But God was not the problem, was it? He was not the problem. The problem was with the people. But that doesn't change things. That sometimes people of God get angry with God. And it may not be justifiable. And it probably is most time not. It's an unreasonable anger and unjustifiable anger. Now turn to our second passage. Genesis chapter 4. A familiar account. As you think about the account of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4. For Abel in verse 4 it says... On his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? 
Cain? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And his desire is for you. But you must master it. So here's another example of a believer of God, a child of God, who is very angry that God has had no regard for his offering. That God has no regard for his sacrifice. And so the lesson is not to focus on the difference of sacrifices here, but to, to focus simply on the reaction of Cain. Cain was angry with God because of God's justice. Because of God's righteousness. Because of God's holiness. Because of God's judgment. And God comes back and he speaks to Cain here. And he says, why are you angry? God knew he was angry and God knew he was angry with him. And he says, you know, why are you angry? You know, why is your countenance fallen? Without discipline, anger can be misplaced, can it not? Without discipline, anger can be misdirected, can it not? And as we probably reflect at times in perhaps re, you know, interaction with other people, and we look back and we see where we were wrong, and how perhaps our anger was misdirected, it was misplaced. And that is particularly true when... It involves feelings of envy. Here is Abel's sacrifice God was happy with. But God was not happy with Abel's brother's sacrifice. And so you have the problem of feelings of envy kind of, you know, playing a role here. But also, when you think that perhaps there is this feelings of a perceived unfairness, maybe. His brother Abel, his brother Abel was not the problem. His brother Abel was not the issue. Nor was the problem or the issue God not accepting Cain's sacrifice. That wasn't the issue either. God says, if you do well, or if you do not do well, What's God doing there? Talk about communication. What God is doing here, he is clarifying where the problem was. And it could be rectified. God didn't, God didn't just say, here's your problem. There's nothing you can do about it. No. God clarified the problem and he said, it's you, Cain. It's you. This anger issue, it's you. It's not Abel, it's not me, it's you. But you can rectify that. But sadly he did. Cain needed to, needed to get his anger under control. But as you know, that's not what he did. Instead, what Cain did, he fueled the anger. He's already hot and he just, he just put more fuel on it. And he sinned even further 
by murdering his brother. So there's two examples of you got men of faith, men of God, children of God, who get angry with God because of how things unfolded. Because of how things happened. How, how God responded. How God reacted. How God dealt with the circumstances. So our third passage now is over in the New Testament, if you will. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading here in the first chapter of James at verse 16. And we're going to read down through verse 25. 16 through 25. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every per perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed. In what he does. Here we have the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the work of James. And so James writes the admonition and the warning of the Spirit and cautions us to be slow to anger. And I would suggest to you in the context that we're being cautioned to be slow to anger in our reactions to God's word. We're going to be slow to anger in our reaction to God's word. Now, is there a principle here that we can apply in relationship? Yes. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being hearers and doers of truth. And people who have been born again of that truth. So, we noted here in the first verses that we read that true goodness, goodness from above, Goodness that is from your Heavenly Father, a Father who knows what's best for you, especially to His children who ask of Him, as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. So here you have, you know, that comes from God. But what is the 
in the context of verse 17 and 18, is it not the exercising of God's will? When God exercises will to produce a harvest of first fruits by the word of truth. In verse 17, every good thing and every perfect, it's from above. Where there's, there's no variation, there's no shifting going on. And then he says, in the exercise of his will, he brought you forth by the word of truth so that you would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Is, is not that the greatest perfect gift? That we, through God's will, for God's work, we become what? As Christians, we become God's workmanship, Ephesians 2. That we are born again into a living hope, 1 Peter chapter 1. That's God at work in us. Don't, he says, so he said, don't be deceived. This is God at work in you so that you can be what God wants you to be. That you can be transformed and renewed all throughout your life. God's work of redemption, though, requires a response, though. You know, God's will is at work. He is exercising His will through Christ and through the Spirit and through His Word and through the plan of Christ. God is at work. But that work has to have a response. Our response. The Word of Truth, when humbly received and when humbly implanted in the hearer, what can that Word do? Because it's God's Word. What can it do? It can save your soul. You're not going to save your soul. God is going to save your soul as, as you and I respond correctly to Him. What are we told in Romans 1.16 about the Gospel? That the Gospel is God's power. It is the power of Christ. It is a divine power at work in the believer. He responds correctly. As Kerry pointed out in his class, in, in Jesus dealing with those who, who were opponents, people who were hypocrites, people who didn't like Jesus. Truth cuts. It cuts hearts. Why? Because the truth is the Spirit's sword. The truth is a sword. It is a sword, as Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us, it is, it is a sword that penetrates thoughts. It is a sword that penetrates intentions. It goes deep. Even when we don't like it. I find it interesting when you're studying the book of Acts. The reactions and the responses of people to the same gospel that's being preached from place to place. For example, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls that day, upon hearing the gospel preached, believed and obeyed. And the Lord added them. Added them to his family. And they became first fruits of this harvest because of the word of truth. God is exercising his will through truth as the apostles of Christ preached to him. That same message is preached in Acts 7. And that's not the reaction you get, is it? In Acts 7, Stephen is the messenger. 
He is the voice. He is the instrument of God preaching the same message of Jesus Christ. The reaction there, the response there of those people who were being likewise cut by the truth. It was one of anger. Intense anger to the point that they murdered Stephen by stoning him to death. Truth hurts sometimes. Truth can anger us sometimes. And so we're told here in James 1 about how God, through the exercise of will, has brought us forth and made us first fruits among his creatures. And that through the hearing and planting of that word and, and us proving ourselves doers of the word, we will be blessed and save our soul. In the middle of all that, we are admonished, we are cautioned, but everyone must be quick to hear. But everyone must be slow to speak. But everyone must be slow to anger. We need to be slow to anger in our response to God, toward God. We need to be slow to anger. David was angry with God. Cain was angry with God. And the Spirit warns us, as children of God, as Christians, be slow to anger in your relationship with God. Carnal anger or worldly anger or prideful anger does not produce God's righteousness in our life. That kind of anger is not going to produce what God can produce in us when we have receptive hearts, humble hearts, obedient hearts. You know, the truth at times is not what we want to hear at the moment. Fortunately, with David, he came to his senses. He learned the lesson he needed to learn. It took a few months, but he learned it. He was a man after God's heart. But we recognize that, you know, when truth hurts, maybe we need to reconsider our reaction. Because sometimes our unwillingness to put away sinful pleasures is what really is hardening, hardening our heart. God clarified to Cain, if you do well, it will go well. If you do not do well, it won't go well. Cain's you. Consider the, the, the principle that's brought out in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9 says... Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Interesting thought. Do not be eager to be angry in your heart to be angry. He goes on to say, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Now there, there's, there, there's a, a principle to chew on, to meditate a little bit, isn't it? Do not be, be eager in your heart to be angry. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Now take this principle and apply it in, in our relationship with God, our responses to God, our responses to truth. When we do that, this principle takes on deeper, fuller, more significant meaning to us. 
Me think, okay, in my response to God, I don't need to be eager in my heart to be angry with Him. Because if that's the case, I'm going to be foolish. I don't need to be quick-tempered with God. I don't need to be quick-tempered with anybody for that matter. But particularly do I, I do not need to be quick-tempered with God. But rather, as James says, we need to be quick to hear. We need to be eager to listen, to listen to what God has to say. Why? Because God is calling us to a life of righteousness. Titus 2, we're called to put away the sin, he said, and to live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. Is that a challenge? Yes. Is it easy? No. But that's our call. As individuals who have been called out of darkness, saved out of darkness, free from the bonds of darkness, now to walk in the light with their Father and with their Lord, we are called to live righteously. We are called to put on a new self, but it's a new self of righteousness. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 24 about how it's a new, new creation. The new man is a new creation of righteousness and holiness. Anger, anger can be an obstacle to that. Anger can be a hindrance to that endeavor. And so be slow to anger toward God. Because anger, what does it do? Anger will harden our hearts. It will close our eyes and stuff up our ears to God. To the Father who loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to pay the ultimate price for all of us. We may not like what our Father above tells us all the time. But he's not, he does not tell that to us because he does not love us. There is no one that loves us more than God. I want to end today's lesson with a passage back in Ecclesiastes as well. We'll read the first two verses of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I think it, it's an, it, a good ending point to our, our study today and our challenge today to keep ourselves in check when the truth maybe hurts. And so Solomon writes, as he writes from wisdom gained in his life, he says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifices of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word. Or impulsive in thought to bring about a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. I can't help but read particularly verse 2 and think about James 1. We're, we're told, be quick to hear. Slow to speak and slow to Do not be hasty. Do not be impulsive. God is above. 
we are below, that your words be few. Anger toward God hardens hearts. Anger toward God closes ears. And the severity of that is that that leads to sin. And the weights of sin is death. Don't let anger be your downfall toward God. God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. Before the world was created, God already loved you. <clears throat> loved you enough that he had a perfect plan to offer the perfect land to atone for the sins of mankind. And that land is Jesus Christ. That land is the Son of God. If you believe Jesus to be God's Son, and you believe Him to be the Lamb that was sacrificed on Calvary's cross for you, but you have not obeyed the gospel, the good news of salvation, Forgiveness, hope. If you do not obey the gospel, we want to encourage you to contemplate your soul's eternity right now. Outside of Christ, alienated from Christ, you have no hope of heaven. It's only in Christ, in the Lord, that we have hope. As you walk by faith, Live a life of faithful obedience. If we can help you to make your life right with God, to put on Christ, we encourage you to let us know this morning. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing the song that's been selected. You can believe Jesus did Christ, but you've not obeyed the gospel. We want to encourage you to confess that faith with your mouth before others. Repent of your sins and be buried with him in baptism so that your sins may be washed away by the grace of your Father of your Savior, Jesus. If you are a Christian, and maybe there is sin in your life that you've not repented of, and you need to make that right, if we can assist you, if it's in some public manner, and we can assist you in that, we, we would gladly pray with you, pray for you. Whatever your spiritual need may be this morning, we encourage you, we invite you, please come now, make your wishes known when we stand and sing the song that's been selected.